2 Samuel 22 is where we're going to be today. You'll open your Bibles there. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Title of the message today is, Can I Get a Witness? Can I Get a Witness? You know? Hey, we've seen the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronological, and what they do is they serve to highlight different events in David's rule and reign. And today, what the focus is on is David's worshipful witness as he testifies of God's faithfulness uh, to him. We're going to look at three things today in regards to David's testimony. We're going to see that David's testimony of God's faithfulness is experiential. Uh, Number two, we're going to see that David's testimony of God's faithfulness is relational. And thirdly, we're going to look at David's testimony of God's faithfulness, how it is powerful. So if you're taking notes, write down the first point. We're going to jump right into it. David's testimony of God's faithfulness was experiential. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved." from my enemies. Again, the last four chapters here, they're not chronological. They're, they're, they're going on uh, just what is happening, highlighting different events. And most commentators surmise that David wrote this psalm that we're reading here. And this whole chapter is one big psalm uh, that David uh, wrote, the testimony of worship and praise of God's faithfulness to him. And most commentators surmise that he wrote this psalm during the time of 2 Samuel chapter 8 when when Saul had died and David first became king and took the throne. But there's many other commentators who who feel that these uh, events um, appear, or these words that he's saying, they appear almost as, as his final words. In other words, it didn't happen when he first assumed the throne, but rather it was a retrospective of David. And so he's looking back, kind of giving his final words and reflecting on his whole life. And certainly it could be either one, um, but it could also be both. And there are those commentators who who think that, hey, you know what, this is something that David, uh, a psalm that he wrote, but that he there's, there's a variation of it. In fact, the, this psalm very much mirrors Psalm 18, and, and there's just some slight word changes in Psalm 18. And so some commentators, like Charles Spurgeon, believe that this suggests that the psalm was sung by David at different times during his rule, um, just when he looked back and reflected on the history of how faithful God had been to him and, and how God had had forgiven him. And haven't you ever done that? Haven't you just sort of had those moments in time where you look back, where you contemplate just how good God's been to you, how faithful God has been to you, how much God has forgiven you of? And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a healthy thing. And sometimes the Spirit just leads us just in a moment just to go, man, God, you've been so good to me. And I just look back and 
Brenda and I have occasion to do this often where we'll look back and we'll just reflect on how good God's been to us, how faithful that he's been to us. David says in verse 3, you are my stronghold and my refuge. That word stronghold is interesting. It literally means strong or high tower. And the idea, it's that when you, when, when you in battle go to that strong high tower, that place of elevation, it gives you an entire view of the battlefield. You know, military tacticians talk about this thing called the fog of war. And as the battle is raging and as information is coming in, you can get that place to where you're just sort of in a fog. You don't have a clear picture of what's going on. And, and being in that strong, high tower with the view over the battlefield gives you a place to where you can cut through the fog of war and be able to understand you know, what's going on to gain a perspective. And, and so what, what is happening here, and this is good, and this is why it's for us to have those times of just thinking back and remembering God's faithfulness. It helps us to cut through the fog of war, because you and I are in a war. We're in a battle. And it is a knockdown, drag-out, fist fight in the alley of life where the enemy's coming against you, he's jumping you, he doesn't fight fair. And, and sometimes, man, it's just in that place to where, hey, when we're overwhelmed, just, just going to God, and maybe even right now some of you are overwhelmed. Maybe you right now, you know, you got here today by the skin of your teeth. And you're overwhelmed with things. You're, you're, the things are, have, have just got you down and out. Psalm 61 says, when, when my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. You know, and I, I love this uh, the, in Philippians when, you know, he says, look, be anxious for nothing. Yeah, it's, that's easier said than done. Isn't it? Like, be anxious for nothing. Don't you hate it when you're like going through something and somebody, some Christian comes up to you, hey brother, be anxious for nothing. You're like, I'm going to punch you right in the mouth, man. I don't want to be anxious for nothing. Why don't you be anxious for nothing, you know? And, and you know, but, but, you know, here's what he says. He says, look, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And somebody has paraphrased this, say, be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. But notice he adds the words, with thanksgiving. Because with thanksgiving is that place where we go to that, that, that high tower, that strong tower, and you can look back and you can remember all the times that God has shown up and been faithful to you. The cavalry has shown up. You're like, oh, well, we're, being, we're being overrun here. And then, you go, God shows up. And you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And so when you're, when you're overwhelmed, listen, yeah, your flesh goes, yeah, you be anxious about nothing. You try it. Yeah, but you know what? God's word is true. It's true. And, and he says, why don't you exercise being thankful? When you're overwhelmed, and for those of you today, maybe you're overwhelmed, just this exercise of saying, you know what? I'm going to run to the strong tower, and I'm going to gain this perspective over the battlefield, cut through the fog of war, and I'm going to say, God, right now, 
Help me to remember all the times when, when I've been overwhelmed before. Help me to remember, God, the times when it seemed bleak. And help me to remember your faithfulness, God. Because that will strengthen you, your past victories, for the, vic- for the battle that you're in today. And so this is where David's at. He's just praising God for his goodness. Just praising God for his faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. And I want you to notice David's emphasis here in these verses. He says, the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's not just a deliverer. He's not just a fortress. No, he's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's the God of my strength, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. He's my savior. In other words, listen, David's faith wasn't theoretical. No, it was based on personal experience. I remember in... uh, 1995, I was in my last year at the fire department before I retired to come into full-time ministry, and um, we were dispatched to a shootout at the Circuit City in Palm Desert, uh, and, um, and so what had happened was there was this guy who was estranged from his wife, and uh, he, just, he just snapped, and so he loaded up the trunk of his car with several weapons, several thousand rounds of ammunition, and uh, drove down to Circuit City there in Palm Desert to get her. And so, well-armed, he goes walking into the store, grabs his wife by the hair, and starts dragging her out of the store. And so there just happens to be an off-duty San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, Sheriff's Officer, walking into the store. And so he sees all this going down, so he draws out his, his off-duty weapon that he's carrying, draws down on the guy and commands him to to let the gal go. Now, this sheriff's officer is in a disadvantage. He has no body armor. This guy has a hostage, his his wife, uh, and uh, and he has a complete lack of regard for anybody around him. And so the guy pulls out his weapon and he starts shooting at the cop. So so the sheriff's officer, he's seeking cover. He doesn't want to hit the hostage. He doesn't want to hit, you know, anybody else. And so he returns fire as well. And so in the, in the shootout that ensued, they're both hit. The gal, not so much. She's okay. But the, but the officer is wounded severely, as is the suspect. And so we're dispatched uh, to this call. I was the second paramedic unit on scene. And so being the second paramedic unit on scene, it, it, it fell to me to treat the shooter. Uh, because, you know, rightly so, first in unit gets the sheriff's officer. He gets treated first. And so I'm the second in unit, and, I, and I'm, I'm treating the shooter, and the guy's unresponsive. And, he's, and we assess his wounds. Yeah, he's got wounds, but he shouldn't be unconscious. His vital signs are okay. So as part of our protocol, what we do is we administer a drug called Narcan. It's a narcotic antagonist. It reverses the effects of narcotics. It's just part of the protocol. This guy is unresponsive, shouldn't be. Let's see if drugs are involved. So we push Narcan. So, so again, got, got a couple of large bore IVs on in him for protocol. His vital signs are okay. We're transferring him to the hospital. I got a couple of sheriff's officers in the back with me. But this guy's not, you know, responsive. And we quickly figure out that he's got what we call Oscar syndrome. Uh, He's working on an Academy Award. He's faking it, you know? And so he just doesn't want to talk to the cop. So so at any rate, we, we, you know, we we transfer him. 
And the fact that I end up giving, you know, Narcan would become a key part of the case. Fast forward a couple of years, we go to court. And, uh, and so I'm called as a witness for the prosecution. To, to, because what's happening is his defense attorney is trying to say that he was under the effects of narcotics, and this is what led to, the, to the, you know, his state of mind and so on. And so they're looking to sort of mitigate whatever sentence he's going to get. And so I'm called in to testify. So being a witness for the prosecution, um, the DA goes first because I'm his witness. He called me. So he, he says, um, you know, how long have you been a medic? And do you recall the incident? And, you know, why did you give Narcan? And what are the effects of Narcan and so on? And, um, and so then he says to me, did the Narcan have any effect? And I said, no, which suggests the guy had no narcotics on board. Well, the defense attorney follows. Now, his job is to discredit my testimony, okay? So the defense attorney comes up, and he's talking to me, and he's like, you know, okay, uh, what's going on out here? And so his first tactic in, in trying to discredit my testimony, he wants to challenge my technical knowledge of Narcan. Okay, how much do I really technically know about this drug? And so he's, at, he's drilling me. He wants to know the proper dosage. He wants to know the proper administration. He wants to know how does this drug work physiologically? Well, what he ca- hadn't counted on was the fact that when I was going through the, the pharmacological you know, portion of my paramedic school, it was really tough and I was stressed out trying to remember all the different drugs and their dosages, and in particular, Narcan really stumped me, just trying to remember all those details. So I had all the information on flashcards. You know how it is when you're going through school, you memorize stuff for a test, but it's like, it's gone, <laughs> right? It's true. We, we have short term, we memorize it, and then, you know, it's, it's gone. For me... The, the, the pharmacology portion of, of my paramedic school wasn't like that. It's like stuck there. It's branded there. So when he asks me about, hey, what, you know, how does Narcan work? What's the effects of Narcan and so on? I'm like, listen, Narcan, it's also known as naloxin, and, and it's a narcotic antagonist, and its job is to block the opioid receptors uh, in the brain and the nervous system. And it's effective on heroin, methadone, Darvon, Percodan, Demerol, Tolwin, Tylenol with coating, some cough and diarrhea medications. <laughs> And, and so as I'm going through this, and the court reporter has to stop me several times. She's like, wait, 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 go back up. Going too fast for me. Heroin. How do you spell that? Methadone. How do you spell that? Darvon. Perkin. And so I go through all of this stuff. So he's like, well, that tactic didn't work. Because I come across sounding like a PDR, physician's desk rest reference, you know, talking about this drug. Just because this guy hadn't counted on the fact that I memorized, I knew it backwards and forwards. But you can know, theoretically, information and not have any sort of experiential knowledge about it. So this guy goes to a second tactic. He's like, all right, so yeah, you, you understand what Narcan is. How many times have you actually used it? I said, well, let's see. I, I was a paramedic for 10 years. Uh, I worked starting off in South Central Los Angeles. <laughs> then I worked in the city of Paris and Mead Valley. Uh, where, you know, narcotic use is rampant. I go, I say, you know, I, honestly, I've probably administered Narcan hundreds and hundreds of times. And he's like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> so then he said, then he, now he's grasping those straws. He says, wait a minute. You said you were a paramedic. Are you not a paramedic anymore? 
I said, no, I'm not a paramedic anymore. And, and he looks at the jury and looks at me with this very troubled, okay, can, can I ask you why you're not a paramedic anymore? I said, well, you know, I quit to pursue a different line of work. Well, what line of work did you, did you pursue? I said, well, I'm a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel. <laughs> so the guy was convicted. Uh, partly because of my testimony, but partly because he was just flat out guilty. But if there had been any doubt about my testimony, it was now ironclad. Why? Well, because my testimony was both credible and it was reliable. See, my testimony reflected, not only did I have a technical knowledge about Narcan, but listen, I had an experiential knowledge about it. Okay, and, and so this is so critically important. When it comes to issues of faith, we have to understand that a reliable testimony, your testimony, it has to be reliable and, and it's essential, it's critical. And listen, here's my point, all of that to say this, you only get that through experience. See, when David says, look, God is my rock, God is my fortress, God is my deliverer. Well, listen, you can't say that unless you've experienced that. And, and, and here's where the rubber meets the road for us, and maybe for those of you that got here by the skin of your teeth, you're hanging on by a thread today. Listen, here's what I would say to you. Sometimes, man, we go through trials and we moan. And we're like, God, where are you? God, what happened? God, why am I going through this? Look, you don't get a testimony without a test and without a money, okay? You don't, you don't get a testimony without going through and saying, what is going on? Listen, God wants to be your rock, but you need to have a rock, a situation where you need that rock to where you're going to appreciate that God is my rock. God is your fortress, but you aren't going to appreciate the fact that he's your fortress until you need a fortress, until you need a strong tower, until you need deliverance. And David, from an experiential place, he could say in his testimony of praise to God right here, saying, God, you've been all of these things to me. I have been through the meat grinder, but God, you've brought me through it. And some of you, again, you're going through that right now. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, he says this, 2 through 4, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, here it is, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So if you're going through a, t- a time of testing and trial and moaning, man, God's building a testimony in you, just as he did with David. Well, not only was David's testimony of God's faithfulness experiential, second point, you can write it down, David's testimony of God's faithfulness was relational. It was relational. Verse 5, David says, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In, the, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Now, he says, the waves of death surrounded me. 
the sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. This is a, the verb stem, the way this is structured. This is talking about intensive action. So this is not some casual, oh yeah, I went through this little trial over here. No, this was like life-altering, overwhelming, you know, curl up in a fetal position and suck your thumb and cry out, I want my mommy kind of trial. And some of you were like, you were at my house last night. That was me at midnight last night, you know. And so, look, his, his testimony was relational. And circle that, highlight it. There at the end of verse 7, because he, he, he cried, he, look, I cried out in my distress to God. And listen, he heard my voice from his temple. And my cry entered his ears. When I was a kid, my sister and I went down to the school to play. And uh, school was, we used to go down to school all the time. Got in all kinds of trouble down there. You know, we used to, me and my friends would go down there. It was a flat roof on this school. We would ride our bikes on the roof of the school, you know. It's a wonder I'm still alive, the stuff we used to do. But my sister and I went down there to play. And, um, and they're, they're, you know, this is, they, they had these, these fence because they get sick of people bringing their bikes into the to the school so there was this maze that you had to go through it was the only way in it only went out so we we go into this place and uh, this kid was in there he started he started terrorizing me and he, he was holding me at knife point and so my sister she's two years older than me uh, middle sister she comes to my aid and now he's holding us both at knife point and it was pretty pretty terrifying, to be, to be honest with you. I mean, it was a little tiny pocket knife, you know, but I mean, we were scared to death of this guy. Well, my dad was at home, and uh, we lived a couple of blocks from the school, and to hear my mom tell the story, it was just like, all of a sudden, my dad just like got this look of panic. He said, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You know, how did my dad know that? He certainly didn't hear our cries, but the Holy Spirit prompted my father. He just knew there's something wrong. Jumped in the car, came racing down, and, and all of a sudden we hear my dad's voice. And I'm screaming out, dad, dad, and this guy is here. And my dad just grabbed that kid by the nape of the neck. I mean, today he'd probably go to jail or whatever, but, you know, because <laughs> he just started. No, he didn't. <laughs> he wanted to. Just grabbed him, walked him back home to his parents where they took care of him. But no, the point is, is that, you know, man, my father heard our cries, is what, I, you know, that's the only way I can describe it. And he rescued us, you know. And listen, no matter what you're facing today, you're not in it alone. The enemy would want you to believe that you're in it alone, but you're not in it alone. And, and so what happens here is David's, David's just. What a great thing to remember. You know what? I was overwhelmed. I was, you know, give me, give me a, you know, my, my blanky fetal position, overwhelmed. God heard my cry. It, it, he heard it in heaven, entered his ear. My voice entered his ear. Just take a walk with that. And when you cry out to God, your voice enters his ear. He hears your voice. How encouraging is that? Look, the Lord isn't just my rock. He's the God of my rock. He's not just my strength. He's the God of my strength. And my question for you today is, listen, is he the God of your strength? Is is he your 
Lord and Savior. See, because so often what happens is we look to be delivered, but we don't look to the deliverer. I want to be delivered from my scenario. I want to be delivered from my situation, but do I really want the deliverer or do I just want to change in my circumstances? We have to answer that question. We have to take a walk with it. Paul to the Colossians, he said this in Colossians 3, he said, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. And that word seek it literally means to desire, to crave, to strive after. And this is the exhortation. And the truth is, is that man desires and craves and strives after a whole lot of different things. I mean, Mick Jagger, that great theologian, I can't get no satisfaction, right? He illustrates this point. That there's a lot of things that we strive after to deliver us that really have a promise of delivery, but they're empty promises, they're clouds without rain. They're, they're, they're just complete oases that are mirages that, that, that don't exist. And the Bible says, look, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked and it seeks and it craves after many things. And the question isn't if you'll seek to find satisfaction. The question is what you're going to seek to find satisfaction in. And so my question for you today is what are you doing seeking to find satisfaction in? Jesus told a parable about a rich man. And this guy is so rich, he's like, hey, you know what? I got all this stuff and I ain't got enough room for all my stuff. So you know what? I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns so I can have more of my stuff. And uh, you ever move? And you're like, where do we get all of this stuff, right? And some of y'all, you're keepers. You just keep all your stuff. You just can't bear to part with any of your stuff, you know? And some of you are throwerwares. God, in his grace and mercy, gave me a wife who's a thrower-aware. I'm a thrower-aware. So it's like, you know, we, we, you know, when we move, you still, even us, who throw it, and it's like, you haven't moved, used it in a week? Get rid of it. You know? <laughs> we don't need that table. Get rid of it, you know? But even then, you, you know, you, you start moving. You're like, where did all this stuff come from, man? And so Jesus is telling this parable. He's like, this guy, he's got so much stuff. He's like, I need bigger bars for all my stuff. And then he said to himself, you know what, then I can kick back, I can relax. Once I do all that, then everything's cool. Then, then, then everything's kosher. I can, I, can just, I can just chill after that. Now, Jesus, in the telling of this parable, <clears throat> he's, not, he's not against saving. And the Bible's clear about, you know, there's, we should be good stewards. But, but, he's, but he tells this parable to address what are you trusting in. That's the idea. See, because this guy, he put all of his trust in his stuff. So listen to what Jesus says to him in this parable. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 20 there. He said, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he, here's your application, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. We skip a few verses down, and he says, For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But, he says, seek the kingdom of God. When he's saying this in Matthew's gospel, he says, Seek first 
the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added unto you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. The psalmist said this way, he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Think about that. I mean, dear kids, what a life kids have, man. I mean, they have to worry about if the mortgage is getting paid. They have to worry about if you're making the car payment. Do they have to worry about any of that stuff? No, their greatest worry is when's dinner, you know? They don't have to worry about what clothes am I, can I afford new clothes? Can I, no, they don't, you worry about all that stuff. And this is the psalmist. He's like, you know, I just want to dwell in God's house. He, he worries about the mortgage. He worries about, you know, the food on the table and the clothes. I just want to, I just want to be a kid in his house, man. How cool would that be? You know, you, you become an adult and you realize, man, it was, I had it good at mom and dad's, you know? <clears throat> Three hots and a cot, man, everything was good. No, they got a father to worry about those things. The idea is David's testimony of God's faithfulness was relational. Hey, you know what? I can cry out, God, you hear me. My voice enters your ear. My voice goes into heaven. But you know, the Bible says that if you are going to be somebody who really has no interest and surrendering to God as Lord and Savior, that, that man, there's, 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 a, there's a point where God won't hear your prayers. And, and what I want to challenge you with today, just take a walk with this idea, is that, look, God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. When Paul, talking to the, the Corinthians, which, or to, uh, I'm sorry, to the Colossians, which God is here, hey, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. He's talking to Christians. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. And the way it's written in the Greek is, it's not if then, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It's if then and you are. And so from the vast majority of you here, it's if then and you are. Look, you were raised with Christ. God's your dad. You can, you can talk to him anytime, day or night. And so the exhortation is, look, don't try and, and, and seek those things which are below. Don't try and seek to engineer the, 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 the solution to whatever pro- problems you have, whatever it is. No, seek God. Seek your Father. But listen, some of you here today, you need to know that there is a Father in heaven who loves you desperately. And he wants to know you personally. He wants to know you intimately. He wants to have a relationship with you. So often we, you know, think of God as, as being, you know, this malevolent being, this evil being who only has, he's, you know, we're the ant and he's the, the kid with the, with the magnifying glass that just wants to fry the ant. Look, that's not how God thinks about you. God loves you with an unending love. He loves you so much he gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins in your place. And today, right now, God offers to you eternal life. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But listen, the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it just means to agree with God. Agree with God that you're a sinner. Agree with God 
that the wages of your sin is death. What, what, what is, you know, you do a job at the end of the week, it's payday, pay me, I get my wages. Why? Because this is what I earned. The Bible says what you've earned is death. So you agree with God that that's true, but you also agree with God today to say, you know what, I, I agree with you that Jesus Christ died for my sins and he paid the penalty for my sin and I, be, I believe in your word that if I confess my, if I confess my sins, and if I confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if I confess that Jesus died on the cross for my sins in my place, if I confess that he rose again on the third day to conquer Satan, sin, and death, and that I believe by faith that if I ask him to be my Lord and Savior, <clears throat> that he can raise me from the dead, that he can give me the hope of eternal life. Listen, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Before we're done today, I will give you an opportunity just to pray. To say, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And if you pray that prayer honestly, you'll be saved. Look, so often people refer to God and relate to God in terms of, you know, hey, are my good works going to outweigh my bad works? No, they'll never outweigh your bad works. You can't do good enough. You can't say enough Hail Marys or Our Fathers or whatever other prayer you want to say. I was raised in the Catholic Church. My mom and dad go to the Catholic Church to this day. This is not a dig on religion. It's just simply to say it's a dig on works. To say you can't work your way into heaven. The only thing you can do is to confess that you're a sinner and ask God to forgive you. And the Bible says if you do that honestly, he will. And you'll be saved. And so today the invitation goes out. Do you know him? Do you have the hope of eternal life? Is your testimony of God's faithfulness relational. Is he your father? Because he can be. David says, look, because I've got this relationship with God, I cry out to the Lord and he hears my voice from his temple and my cry enters his ears. Your cry can enter the ears of your father in heaven today. Know it. Receive it. Live it. Well, hey, our third and final point is that David's testimony of God's faithfulness was powerful was powerful. We'll pick it up for context in verse 7. David says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. What was the result? Well, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. And this word angry means just that. He was ticked. And who is he angry with? Well, he's not angry with David. David's a sinner, he's a blow it, just like you, just like me, which by the way is one of the ways we know the Bible is true, because it paints its heroes warts and all. So we see David as a man, and this by the way is another reason when, when he begins to, to, to go through this, and we're going to see this more next week, he starts talking about how the Lord rewarded him according to his righteousness, and, and this is why some people go, well he certainly wrote this before he sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba, no, no. Because God made him righteousness. He just believed by faith what the prophet Nathan told him. Hey, your sins are, are put away. You're not going to die. You're going you're to be righteous in God's eyes. And you can be righteous in God's eyes today. You come here with guilt. You come here with shame. You come here burdened down with, well, gosh, you know, if everybody knew, and, you know, if I really confessed who I actually am inside... Well, then they'd have a different opinion of me. God would have a different opinion. No, God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the end from the beginning. He, 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 
You know, when David says, search me and know me, Lord, find if there be any wicked way in me, so often we're afraid to pray that prayer because we know if we get searched out that there is a lot of skeletons for God to find. Well, newsflash, he, he knows it. He, he sees right through you. He knows everything about you. And the miracle is he loves you anyway. I don't know why. I don't know why he loves you. I get... I don't know why he loves me, but he does. So David here, is, as he's crying out, and he's, he's like, you know what? God showed up, and he was ticked off. At who? At David's enemies. At those who, who are, are going to go after one of his kids. When my dad showed up at that school, he was upset, he was angry. Why? Because that guy dared to, to hold my sister and I at knife point. He had to deal with my dad. Smoke, verse 9, went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. And With darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and flew. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. This is all the foreboding pictures of judgment and wrath. And from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he set out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Now in the Hebrew, in those verses that I've just read, the Hebrew uses different verb stems to identify actions. There's the PL verb stem and there's the Heifel verb stem. And the PL verb stem, we see it in verses 5 and 6 and we see it again in verse 19. Um, there, you know, we see it there when, when uh, he says, the waves of death surrounded me. The, the sorrows of Sheol, verse 6, surrounded me. Verse 7, uh, or, um, I'm sorry, verse, verse 5, the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of the ungodless made me, the sorrows of soul, verse 6, surrounded me, and then uh, again, the end of verse 6, the snares of death confronted me. So surrounded, surrounded, confronted. This is the PL verb stem. Here's what it means. It's basically it's the intensiveness of action. And so what we have here is these contrasting pictures. We've got the enemy who comes against you, the enemy who comes against David. There's an intensity to the way that he comes against us here, right? But we also have this Heifel verb stem that's used, and we see the Heifel verb stem in verses 17 and 18. Hey, he sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong Enemy. Here's the Heifel verb stem. Here's what it means. This is, it, it has to do with the fact that this is totally God's work on your behalf. There are these intensity of actions that come against us, but we have an ever more powerful God that comes against the forces of the enemy in our life. This is what David's articulating. Hey, he's sent from above, he's all powerful. 
And God is like, you're mine. He took me. He delivered me. He drew me out of all of these deep waters. And it's all God's work. Listen, today, God is a powerful God. You can't lose sight of that. You have to know and trust in the fact that God is powerful in your life. He will deliver you from whatever you're facing today. He stands at the door of your heart today and he knocks. He says, look, I'll, I'll deliver you. And those of you, listen, that are in Christ, that are saved today, maybe coming in here hanging on by a thread, you need to be reminded God is powerful. And he might have you in a time of testing. You might be in the barrel of life right now, just getting worked over. You have to remain steadfast and and secure, knowing my God's powerful. And he won't allow anything to come against me that he hasn't prescribed. And maybe you're going through a time of testing. Maybe you're going through a time of refinement. Maybe, in fact, you're being attacked by the enemy. But listen, God won't give you more than you can handle. And he will not allow the enemy to prevail in your life. And he will hear your voice from heaven and you can cry out to him and know he can and will deliver you. And you need to remember all the times that he's delivered you in the past. And listen, for those of you today that have never cried out to God and surrendered your life as your Lord and your life to God and made him your Lord and Savior. If I was to ask you the question today, how do you know you're going to heaven? If your answer would be, I don't know. Listen, today you can know. Because there's a powerful God that wants to deliver you, that's paid the penalty for your sin, past, present, and future. And some of you right now, you're in the place where you're like, look, I believe all that. I'm just not so confident that I'm going to be able, I I don't want to say something and be a hypocrite. Somebody was golfing with Pastor J. Vernon McGee one day, and they found out at about the ninth hole that he, that he was a Christian. And they're like, oh, you know what, I I don't want to go to church with, with all the Christians. There's too many hypocrites there. Jay Vernon McGee is like, well, come on out, man. One more won't make any difference. We're all hypocrites on a certain level. Some of you today, you're saying, gosh, I, you know, I, I just, I, I believe and I want to make a profession, but I want to wait until I'm ready to follow through. No, no, no. It's like having kids. You're never ready. Okay. <laughs> So, so, no, you, it's not that you're going you're gonna to commit your life to Christ today and then, you know, your life's going to be like a country western song played backwards and you get your truck back and your car back and your, your dog back. And it's, not, you never, it's not like your life's going to be perfect and you're never going to sin. But it's not cheap fire insurance either. Like some people say, oh, yeah, I'll say the prayer, I'm good. Now, you know, let's go get a beer. No, God will change you and you have to have a desire to walk according to righteousness, but God says in his word that the righteous man falls seven times, yet he gets back up again. You will fall, you will blow it, you will sin. As long as you are flesh and blood and breathing, you will sin. But it's, it's an issue of saying, no, I'm not going to wink at sin, and when I do stumble into sin, I'm going to confess it and ask the Lord to help me to walk in righteousness. That's Christianity, my friend. Not being perfect, it's being forgiven, it's being saved, it's being redeemed. And you can be redeemed today. Turn to to Matthew chapter 8. I want to close here. Pick it up in verse... uh, 
So Jesus is, is doing his thing. He's ministering to people. He's preaching the gospel and so on. And in verse 23, we pick up the story. It says, now when he, Jesus, got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. In another version in telling the story, they're like, don't you care that we're dying here? You're sleeping through it? You're going to sleep through the whole thing, for crying out loud. Don't you care? And um, he said to them, verse 26, why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here's here's one of the the downsides to the stories and the gospel accounts that we have is that we read them and we hear the story and then we lose the power of that story. And I just want you mentally to put yourself in that boat. You're being overwhelmed. You think for certain that you're you're dead. These are seasoned fishermen. This This was a bad situation here. And all of a sudden, Jesus wakes up and he, and he says, knock it off. Wind stops, sea calm, like, that's freaky stuff right there. And, they, and they, they're shocked. They're like, we just saw the power of God right there. Who is this? They know who it is. This is God in the flesh. And, and imagine that. And then as you're imagining that, I want you to imagine right now, whatever you're in, whatever state you're in, or whatever state you will be in, that's your, that's your Lord. That's the power of the relationship that you have with God, that He is the God who calms the sea, who calms the wind, who settles the storms of life. And I want you to consider this. Look, the disciples, they followed Jesus into the boat. You know, it says there, he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. And some of you all today, you might be thinking, look, I'm going through whatever I'm going through. And I'm, you know, what the heck? I thought I was following God. Yeah, he might lead you into a storm. He might. Because he's doing a work. Because he wants to reveal himself. Because he wants to do a work in you. And so maybe you're in the midst of a storm and you're like, well, you know, where did Jesus go? He's in your boat. He, you know, you're following him. He just allowed you to be in a storm. Now, some of y'all are in a storm because you left God a long time ago and you're just reaping the consequence of some boneheaded decisions. It's not, we're not going to paint it with a broad brush and call it all, hey, this is where God has led you. Some of you are in a storm because you've led yourself there through some train wreck decisions you need to repent today. But some of y'all, you're there, hey, I've always followed Jesus. Okay, well, he led you into a storm. And I want you to see what were the disciples trusting in because they're waking up Jesus going, hey, we're dying, don't you care? It kind of reveals that in their heart of hearts, they're really trusting kind of more in the boat and in the weather, you know, in the conditions. And aren't we like that sometimes? I mean, we have a saving, and we're with the Lord. We believe in him, but so often we put our faith in the conditions rather than the one who has power over the conditions. Because Jesus is the God of the boat. He's the God of the winds. He's the God of the seas. So my question for you today, thirdly and finally, look, what are you trusting in? Sometimes God takes us into situations where things fail, where the storm clouds rise. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in a desperate situation. 
And maybe to you, God would say this. He would say to you, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we have a God who is powerful. And I wonder, do you know him?